Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Good morning. <laughs> Allie said that it was her job to announce me, and I was like, can you please do like a WWE like <laughs> wrestling and then I like come out of the, the drums or something, but I mean, that's not what we ended up doing. <laughs> Um, So I'm Gwen Hunter. Um, My better half is my husband, Rob, especially in this sphere. He's my claim to fame. He really is the better half of the two of us. Um, We've been coming short of two years. In the winter, it'll be two years. So a couple years that we've made this place our home church. And then officially, just a couple weeks ago, (laughs) when we did membership so that I could be up here. Um, So we've been doing this series on community. And I believe that this... This morning is the punctuation for that series. It's the last one. And when Josh asked me to speak and then he told me what the topic was, that it was community, I was super stoked because this, this is my thing. The trouble with that is that there's just so many things that I want to say. So with that, I'm going to try and keep it linear today, but I get really, really excited about this topic in particular. Little backstory about me. I grew up in a really big family, and that's one of my big... That's one, a big piece of my identity. I'm really lucky in the family that I grew up in, incredibly close, Christ-centered, all of that good stuff, which I know a lot of people, that's not their experience. And I am really glad that that was mine. In that, it was a big family of seven kids, and we were all incredibly close together in proximity as well as just intimacy. And that was something that I just loved. I thrived on that. And so in that close-knit family environment, I loved that there was just the relational capacity for everything. That We knew the same movies. We knew the same music. There was no explanation for anything. It was an effortless kind of intimacy. And that has maintained even as we grew up, even with how many of us there are in the different states that we live in, and even a brother that lives out of the country, we have kept really, really close to this day. In my adulthood, as I moved out of that family environment, that's something that I sought out on my own afterward. It's like, wow, I just really love relationships, and I really love being around people. And I later learned that that's called being an extrovert, (laughs) which is something that I fully claim I am. I totally am. But later in my life, I came across people that they like people, they, they love the people in their life, but it's not always their preference to be around people. That would be an introvert. What is that? That doesn't make any sense to me. And so in my life, coming upon these people that, yes, I love my family, I love my friends, I don't want to be around them all the time. I actually don't really understand that. Imagine my surprise when I find out some of those freaks were hiding out in my own family. We, we grow apart and we have separate lives, and I'm like, so... So wait a second, you mean that like every night, movie night, all on the same couch, it, what, you didn't like it? What do you mean? And then looking back at how they are now and how they choose to live pretty separately and being like, you grew up in the same crazy family I did. How did you do? And they're like, not well. <laughs> but that's not my experience. So, so With that, we're going to start by just getting on the same page socially with where we all stand at an individual place with community. Citing from the Human and Social Sciences Journal, it says, We are shaped by our social environment and we suffer greatly when our social bonds are threatened or fractured. 
Every Western ideology accepts this with the notion of nature versus nurture, saying the environment you grew up in, and that's why I cite family, that's the first community experience that you have. And that really has a lot to do with where you come later. I loved couch movie night, and so now I'm like, who's up for couch movie night? <laughs> who's around? Other people who grow up in an environment where it's not as positive, we see the impacts of that later in life. Josh brought up pretty early in this series, it might have even been the first week, the idea of the child not embraced by the village, burning it to feel its warmth. So we all can be on the same place of starting with the people that you grow up around, they really have a lot of impact on you and your emotional health. When this happens in childhood, it can have long-term effects that are just as real to us as physical wounds. That's why we use language like, she broke my heart. He hurt my feelings. That's what we can parallel it to. How people treat us and the, what they inflict on us, we can really only parallel it to physical pain. We are wired such that our well-being depends on our connection with others. Another point. Increased social isolation is associated with decreased life satisfaction, higher levels of depression, and lower levels of psychological well-being. High levels of social isolation may create self-protective thinking that can lead to a negative outlook impacting the way we interact with others. Yes, even self-described introverts. So starting in the same place, we're going to come back to that last point later in this, but I'm going to leave it hanging for just a second. We're going to be flipping through a few passages today. We're not going to hang out in the entirety of all of them, but I gave you the whole chunk so that you can go back on your own and look at it. The first passage is going to be in Genesis chapter 3, looking at verses 14 through 19. We're going to read it together. Starting in verse 14, and I'm reading from the ESV this morning. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and, I, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So we're going to paint a picture of what we're looking at. This is what we coined the fall of man, what we're looking at here. We're in the garden. He's created both male and female at this point. There was a deception, a temptation, and Eve took of the fruit, gave it to her husband, and sin has entered the world. This picture in Genesis in the garden, it's God creating a perfect environment and giving himself in perfect relationship with man. We say that, we can recognize that, but we really have no illustration of what that means because we, on this side of the garden, have never experienced it. A perfect environment with no sin and a perfect relationship, man to man and man to God. There's no self-centeredness. There's no passive aggression. There's, there's just nothing there. And we can't really 
Picture that. Eve is doubtful and deceived and eats of the tree of good and evil, resulting in what we refer to as the fall of man. So taking it point by point, there's a fracturing in relationships that happens here. And it's not just between God and man, but that is the ultimate fracturing that happens here. So the first relationship that is fractured is between man and Satan. And I want to point out, it's not that man and Satan were super duper tight like man and God, and there's some kind of, oh, now, now we're just not that close anymore. The point that's being made here is that there is something present in this relationship that was created that was not present before. It's called enmity. So it's not that this is a really solid relationship that was lost, but there is a relationship that's created on something not positive. Enmity, biblically, is defined as irreconcilable hatred or a blood feud, literally. That makes me think of like Hatfields and McCoys, where it's literally like between the two of us, one of us is going down, and from this point on, it is my sole mission to make sure it's you. That is our relationship as people that we have with Satan. That's his job now. Second, verse 16, there's a tension created between man. In this case, it is between husband and wife, the man against the woman. But obviously, in every relationship after that one, we see a present in there, the tension between man. What was perfect and had the same goal? No longer. The third relationship, painful toil between man and earth. We see it in verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. <laughs> Last one, separation of man from God. The only perfect relationship in existence. The ultimate relationship, fractured. And a separation. So let's tally it up. <laughs> We've got enmity between man and Satan, fracturing a relationship between man and man, man and earth, man and God. What does that leave? Nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing without the impact of sin. In this story, after the doling out of what's referred to as curses, before they are sent out, there is immediate provision and a promise of restoration between God and his people. This is steeped in metaphor, and I could stay on this one the whole time. But there's the immediate provision of, they're not covered. Okay, we, we see in the story that they try and cover themselves. It's not efficient. <laughs> they use foliage, where it's like, you're okay, turn around. Okay, you're not covered anymore. So he has to make a killing and provides them skins for the covering. Steeped in metaphor. <laughs> that picture just right there, but I can't stick on it too long. The promise of restoration between God and his people. In verse 15, there's a promise made. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promise, I just want to clarify. This promise is not made pointing at Eve. It's not made pointing at Adam. His eyes are locked on Satan. This is a promise to the enemy saying, I see what you did. I know you think that you just conquered. This is a promise that I'm making to you, and I will see that it happens. The promise of the bruising, it's a promise of someone coming, and this person will be harmed, but he will conquer. 
Okay, switching gears, I'm gonna try and keep this linear as we're going through the themes of community. We talked about where we started. When community was created, the perfect divine design and the fracturing, but a promise of restoration. So we're gonna move into the New Testament. We're gonna be looking at the community of Jesus. This is another one that I have to keep to my notes because I could talk about this one for days and days. Um, We're going to be in Luke chapter 6 in the verse chunk of 12 to 36. This is going to be a familiar passage to Matthew 5 through 7 when we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Super, super famous passage. We're going to be in the Luke variation. Reading together in verses 12 going down to 16. One of those days... Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is steeped. There's so much, so much in here that I love, so I'm going to try and keep it linear. Okay, so what we just read. In the Matthew variation, we call this the Sermon on the Mount, that he spends time with God, he comes down, and then delivers a really, really famous message. So what we see is Jesus coming down from the mountain after being with God. He chooses from the disciples, 12 apostles, and then gives the Sermon on the Mount. So, pause. He chooses from the disciples. I, I want to I delineate between disciples and apostles. Disciple literally means follower, and that's exactly what was happening. Because at this time, the word about Jesus is, this guy says some of his best work when they're eating dinner. And he'll just like stop and like wash people's feet. So it's really not a, hey, when's your next retreat? When's your next conference? Oh, where are you going to be at this Sunday? Like showing up to, to, to the next meeting. This is a, no, if I'm not actually following him, I miss stuff. He's just spitting out metaphors at really weird times. So the only way is to literally track him and follow him around. So that's what the disciples were. They were followers of Jesus. The next piece, choosing from the disciples, 12, saying, I'm going to start here, but there's a core group that I'm going to pare down to. These are going to be apostles. In Greek, coming from apostolos, which means messenger, sent out. So there's a picture of, you're not following me around and getting all this good stuff for your own personal enlightenment. This isn't just for your benefit. You are going to take this and you're going to take it out to other people. There's going to be a sharing. There's going to be a, okay, I've got this. Now, now what? You, you take it out. You give it to other people. That is what these 12, that's their function. After he gathers the 12, he gives the Sermon on the Mount. Parallel, Old Testament parallel. <laughs> the last time we saw this very thing being played out was in Exodus. So I'm going to go to Exodus 19. We're going to read together, starting in verse 3, going down to verse 5. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples 
for all the earth is mine. Garden. (laughs) Okay, so here's what we're seeing in that one that parallels to what we read in Luke. Moses, coming off Mount Sinai after spending time with God, gathers the 12, in this case, the 12 tribes, the people of Israel, the people that were promised to be made a great nation, and he gives them the law in the next chapter, in chapter 20. He does this, the giving of the law, to make them a people, fulfilling the covenant made to Abraham to bring his people out of Egypt. I'm not going to read it, but for note takers, that's in Genesis 15, verse 13 to 15. That's the first phase of restoration. That promise made in Genesis 15 is saying, these are my people, and they're going to be in a situation. It's going to be tough. I'm going to bring them out, and I will restore these people to myself. That happens through the giving of the law. It didn't happen before he brought them out, I'm going to point out. It's not a, you're in Egypt, you're having a hard time. Okay, I see that. I'm here to help you. Here's a checklist. I'll give you like three weeks, see if you got it, and then I'll get you out of here. That's not how it went either, because it wasn't about that. It was about making them a people. So this illustrates for us in Exodus that restoring a relationship with God, he's saying restoring a relationship with me, is what restores the people. That is how this happens. Jesus brings the next stage of restoration. Jews and Gentiles. It wasn't just about the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis. Now it's about something bigger. Jews and Gentiles, not just Judea and Jerusalem, but also the people of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus came to fulfill the promise made to Satan in Genesis 3, verse 15. The locked eyes promise of, you think you just conquered something. But I'm going to send someone, and he's going to save the offspring of Eve. Who's that? Who's the offspring of Eve? It's everybody. It's everybody. It's us. We're not left out. That first promise was for the people, but his people extends outside of that. That the line of Eve would be victorious over sin and death. So the idea of bringing in, whereas before, the Israelites were just like the lottery group of like, oh, we're, we're chosen, we get to go. And now it's, a, it's open. We're talking about the whole offspring. Relationship with Jesus means being woven into a new community, brought in, woven in. When choosing the 12, this is the perfect picture of that. When he chooses the 12 apostles, he created a community of strangers who did not choose each other. So even those who had some level of familiarity with each other who might have made it be like, a, hey, Jesus, I don't know if you have context on Matthew. Um, we, we happen to know him. He's a local. Not a great choice with that. Of They didn't know. They didn't have a process of choosing each other when they were woven together. So there are a couple points about that that I just I can't, I can't move on from. The people that he chose, regardless of context, Matthew, talked about that one, the tax collector, that they may have had run-ins with already. Peter, who would deny him, still chosen. And Judas, who would betray him. In John, chapter 6, verse 64, but there are some of you who will not believe 
For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. That spells something out for us. And he chooses Judas. This all goes in with the great commission that we see in Matthew 28, verse 19. The go, therefore. Therefore, go. Looking at this and being like, okay, this isn't a personal enlightenment thing. This isn't a, oh, I love to grab my coffee and stroke my cat and have my time in Romans in the morning and then I just feel so much closer to God. It's about a, you have this so that you can go. Bring in, as I'm telling you to bring in. In this same passage in Luke, we see what this new community being woven together is going to be known for. They're going to be known by two things. Thing number one, the shared values of the people inside. And we see that in verses 20 to 22. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. This portion is known as the Beatitudes, and it goes into the blessings and woes. The latter being a little bit more of a downer. First one also being kind of a downer. The blessings and woes are opposite to each other. When it goes into the woes, it's talking about things that are contrary to what we're blessed for. Breaking down what we're blessed for. You who are poor, who hunger now, who weep when people hate you. The things that God considers us blessed for are... Vulnerability, sacrifice, grief, and exclusion. Those don't sound awesome. So pointing out that these are only blessings when accompanied by a trust in God. These things innately on their own, I don't feel super blessed when this is happening. Accompanied by a trust in God, blessed are you who are, for you will a trust of what's coming. Blessing, in both the Greek and Hebrew, it's the same, same translation. It means a deep satisfaction. It would have to be extremely deep for it to not be circumstantial, to feel blessed. Second thing that this new community is going to be known by, its relationship to the people outside. That's not surprising. Relationships are a really, really big deal to God. This is laid out in verses 27 to 28. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. He jumps right to enemies because I think that's just necessary. God knows how our hearts work and we're like, okay, the community outside, if we're talking about like my neighbor, I don't know super well, okay, I can see myself going out and, and bringing in. He jumps right to the extreme. Not those we disagree with, our enemies. He says, pray for them. Again, he knows how we're wired because he did that. There's a changing of our heart posture when we take people to prayer. Sinner no longer meant to the people of Israel 
Sinner no longer meant those not under the law, those who broke the Ten Commandments. It meant everyone. That changes how we see those who are outside. It's not just you weren't born in the lottery nation. It's, okay, if this changes the definition of sinner, that also means me. That was profoundly upsetting to those who, in their estimation, had been following the law, hadn't broken anything. Wait a second, you're calling me a sinner? I happen to have an extremely clean record. Please don't say that about me. That's very upsetting to hear. We are entrusted with his love. That is what guides and leads our relationship to the people not brought in yet. In Colossians 3.12, it says to put on compassionate hearts. I'm going to settle on compassion for a while. It's a big one for me as well. Even just in English, when we look at the etymology of the word, compassionate, that prefix, it means with, passionate with this person. What you're feeling, I'm feeling with you. It's even better in Greek. (laughs) Okay, the Greek word, splonknizimai, It translates to compassion, which means stirring of the inward parts, literally the twisting of the intestines. When I hear this, and it was for the first time when I was was doing my research for this, that I came upon that definition of the biblical term. And I was like, I know exactly what that's talking about. That puts to words exactly what I feel all the time. I'm looking at Tamara. She's up in the, <laughs> up in the loft. Literally twisting, twisting of the intestines. Feeling that for someone else. Something that they're sharing with you. Something that you're seeing makes you for that person. Instead of disgust, instead of contempt. I'm going to pause for a second. When I was sharing this, because I, I went over some stuff with each of the pastoral staff um, running this message by them. And Sky goes, he was like, if anywhere in here you want to put in like a joke, he's like, when you're, when you're giving the definition for compassion, it's basically defining it as a bowel movement. He's like, you could point that out to people. And then we just went on a rabbit trail where it's like, wow, brother, what you're sharing just really moves my bowels for you. <laughs> so, so there you go. Okay. Back, this, this also goes back to the idea of grief in the Sermon on the Mount, where it says, blessed are those who weep. I really believe we're talking about this idea of compassion, being like, if you see things and you are unsettled by them, that's really, really good. That you can't witness these things and not be stirred for them. That is what we are blessed for. When thinking of people on the outside, even sometimes of some people on the inside, who claim the same faith that we do, lacking that compassion. An absence of compassion is a lack of humility and an offense to the cross. There is a super, super cool quote by D.A. Carson that just kind of sticks all right that together. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been loved by Jesus himself. 
They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Love it. Okay, this is linear, but we're going to go back a little bit. In the community that we're called into, there are a couple really, really cool um, illustrations of that, but they are back in Exodus. That doesn't mean that we're not on track. It just means we're going back to the Old Testament. That's going to happen when we're looking at the word. So together we're going to look at Exodus 17 in verses 8 through 12. I'm going to give some context before we go into the verse. So what's happening here is they're in the wilderness, and the people, the nation of Israel is being led by Moses, and they're just kind of going around. And as this is happening, now they've been out there long enough that people are like, okay, so this is, this is a group that can be kind of targeted. So they're being attacked by different nations at different times, that people are coming and trying to take them down. So that's what's happening right before this one, is that they are being attacked by the nation Okay, so verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. This picture is just so steeped. I just keep using that word, but that's, that's what it is. Holding Moses's arms up in battle, physically looking at his weakness and saying, okay, okay, you take one side, I take the other. This is also an illustration that Moses is not powerful in himself. It's not like because he was chosen to lead this group that he has some kind of supernatural innate power. He is still a human that bears human weakness. We see men come alongside and aid resulting in the victory of Israel against Amalek. This also shows the relational capacity for conflict. Moses not being like, let go of my arm. I was chosen by God to lead and guide. I'm fine. There was the relational capacity of saying, hey, Moses, we see that you're really tired. We see that you're growing weak. We came up here with you. Let us hold your arm up. This also could have been priming Moses' heart for the next chapter our next passage in chapter 18 of Exodus, verses 13 to 18. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is it that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God's and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. So again, some more context. They're in the wilderness, And he is the only authority established at this time. They don't have little micro setups of of people to go to in each camp. Moses is it. 
And so with the whole group, he's the only person that they're coming to. So with Jethro's advice, the posture of Moses' heart, I don't know, and it doesn't say, so I won't infer. But between us, I think this breaks down, this illustration breaks down to a couple different options. It can apply to an elevated view of self. Moses, why are you sitting here all day? You're the only one. Because the people come to me. (laughs) Sometimes I think that's the one that maybe I can relate more. And sometimes not even the elevated view of self, but the elevated view of role, being like, when they stop coming, I'll stop showing up, but people will never stop needing me. Second option, Moses could be ravaged with discouragement. That's the one that, again, not making an inference, because the text doesn't say the posture of Moses' heart. That one, I think, is pretty safe to look at, see, question of the call, when God asked him to do this, being like, (laughs) that call. And then also the grumbling of the people. At this time in the wilderness, they are not encouraging Moses and speaking life into his leadership. There's a lot of grumbling. So if I had to bet, I would bet Moses is discouraged in this season. That advice of not only are you not doing it a great job of having all these people under you, you can't do it alone. Break it off. Encourage some other people to be equipped into stepping into this role. You might be a little bit of a role hog in this too. Okay, so in that we see the function of community can be encouragement. And from that one, we're going to look at Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I love that one. And it goes back to that divine design point that we made earlier. High levels of social isolation may create self-protective thinking that can lead to a negative outlook impacting the way we interact with others. That point of get around each other. And when you're around each other, exhort one another. Exhort, same meaning as encourage. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you are hiding yourself away, we start to stew. And we start to think things, oh, I'm not invited because they feel this way about me. And then we start filling in blanks with things and we allow ourselves to be deceived. Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 20. But be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is that same thing of get around each other and when you are around each other, this is what you should be doing. Praising, testifying, get, just talking about the goodness of God in your life with each other. This one is important because it also, without saying it, it insinuates what we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to commiserate. We're not supposed to, oh man, isn't our boss the worst? Isn't he? Like all that kind of stuff. We're not supposed to use each other 
for mutual discouragement. That's unproductive and not commanded. Community is the Lord's provision for us in that way. Because the call is hard, because the things that we're blessed with are difficult. Saying, because I know of what it's gonna look like for you from here on out until I come back for you, I'm giving you my spirit and I'm also giving you each other. He knows that a cord is stronger than a thread. In that same way, especially those last two in Hebrews and Ephesians, I I can't help but look at it without seeing that biblical community, when we are behaving in that capacity, it stokes a longing for heaven. When that happens and we get around each other, and I think about this summer when we were doing um, the worship nights where we were around the bonfire and we were just singing and we were playing games and like all that kind of thing, that is as close as we can get on this planet, the one that still has sin on it, that's as close as we can get to biblical community. And when that happens, you just can't help but be like, I can't wait until we do this all the time. Where we're at in each other's hearts, it's esteemed. Not because we're so awesome, not because we hold any kind of power, but in the end, when it's over, all we get to take with us is each other. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for not sending us here without any tools and without any model and without any provision that you gave us your spirit, but you also gave us each other to encourage, to praise, to exhort, and to love. And that with that, we take it out. We don't just keep it with ourselves, Lord. Show us where to take it out. And also show those people that it's not from us, that it's from you. Amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.